This morning we're going to discuss family and children. And uh, as our text, we've kind of, to start with, we've kind of looked at Genesis 2.24. Everybody kind of, I know we've been quoting it quite a bit, so everybody hopefully is kind of familiar with that. When the Lord said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So today we're going to work through some thoughts on marriage and what it means in regards to, particularly how, how in, gar, in regards to how it changes in, in relationship to the parents and uh, the rest of the community. Uh, so we're going to look at parents to begin with and why do we need to relate differently to them uh, because of marriage? How do we, do we respond to them in unity? in the areas of being maybe disinterested or being disengaged or maybe control of the family and, or parents, uh, how much they're involved, more or less. And secondly, we're going to look at children. And we're not going to do this from a child-rearing point of view because that's a, that's a, that's a whole other thing. You know, that, would, that could probably take a few, a few uh, sessions in and of itself. But, no, we're, but more specifically, we're going to look at it from from a, a biblically and, and, and loving viewpoint on marriage, because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about marriage. So we're gonna be talking about how, these, how children fit into this and, 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 and uh, how, to, how to look at that, uh, the unity and becoming parents, the issues involved towards becoming a family. Um, of course, the priority is gonna be the same. You know, we've talked about throughout this out these sessions about what our priority was. And come on, someone, someone can tell me surely what that priority is, was. Glorify God. Huh? Glorify God. Glorify God in what way? There you go. Christ and his love for the church. There we go. That's what we've been talking about is demonstrating that through the marriage of Christ and the church. And we've also had, when we're talking about that, we've also used one word, which you can, basically two, we used one word that kind of sums up the marriage. Does anybody kind of remember what that one word was? Anybody? Oneness. And we've talked about, and I've, I thought I threw that out quite a bit, but you know, oneness, that's what we've been talking about, unity. We've been talking about unity. So that's, that's the, you know, those are the main reasons, the main things we're talking about in, in the marriage relationship. So let's start with parents. Seems like a good place. And in order to do that, let's start with, we've read that passage back in Genesis. And it says, it says leaving, it has that term leaving in there. And as we've been saying for the last several weeks, we're going to talk about oneness in both the spiritual and physical sense. So I'm, I'm trying to get you guys engaged here. So what's it mean by leaving? So in that verse, verse of that scripture passage, what's it mean by, what's it mean by leaving? Depart from your mother and father. Good, good. Any other, any other thoughts? Do we, just, do we just walk out the door and say, okay, I'm going getting married today, bye, see ya. Is that kind of the, the context that's in? Yes, no, maybe. No, I see a nod. I said, no, no, that's, that's not the context. No, that's not the, so something else may, must be involved there. Is it a trial period? Do we get to say we get, Overs, you know, I told you the story a while back about the, I think maybe in the first or second time we were together about the, the blind date, you know, and how that worked out. And, and the lady's response to the thing on marriage was, you know, well, if it doesn't work out, um, let's get forced and, you know, everything's good. You know, that was a concept that she had on marriage. So I don't think it's that. The bond between a husband and wife should be different than that between the child and the parent. Oneness, that idea we're talking about, that demands separation. The bond between the husband and the wife should be stronger than that, than the bond between the, the parents and the children. 
When we adhere to God's ordained method of marriage, that is a man leaving his parents, joining to his wife, a man has been given the woman that God has destined him for, and that tie that binds these two together should be so close and so indissolvable that the man will sever the former ties of home and be joined with his wife as her husband. He's now under an obligation to observe all the duties that this new relationship implies. If we look at, remember when we looked at back at Ephesians, Ephesians 5, in, in Ephesians 5.29 it said, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So even as the wife will be guided in her entire life by God's will, 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9 say, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man, as a helpmeet for the man. So men and women are supposed to be united by the ties of like common interests, sharing the good and bad. If you remember our most of us had those wedding vows, you know, joy and sorrow, sickness and health. And they're supposed to do that as if, as if they were one single person. One single person, man and woman. So that kind of excludes polygamy. Not kind of does, it does. It excludes polygamy and same-sex marriage. God has created a new family in the midst of this. And in order for a new family to be formed, there must be separation of the old. If we look at Deuteronomy 13.4, God said, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. And that cleave, hold fast. We are to leave the worldly lust and idols and cling to him. Now that cleave, cleaving to God, is the same cleave in the King James Version that's in 2.24. That leaving, cleaving to God. So if, you know, and it's difficult if you've had some loving and wonderful parents, and, or maybe not, the idea of giving up that support system or freedom, that may seem difficult. And sometimes that can even seem traumatic. And especially when you hit your first speed bump or maybe your first pothole, then the natural inclination is, I think all of us have it, is to, to run back which, to that which is safe and secure, and that's our parents. But now we formed a new relationship. We formed a new family. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't use or shouldn't take advantage of the wisdom and things that our parents have. But before going back to mom and dad, we need to make sure that we first get together as a unit and, and talk it over and, and rationalize it out. And then as a unit decide, okay, we need advice. And then go seek that wisely counsel from our parents. But it should be, to, should be together. So, so when God says to leave, he literally means to go. Out, to go. Just like we're to leave and cleave to God when we're saved. It's to go. It's to leave the world behind. It's, it's to leave the lust behind. It's to go to our Lord God. Well, the family is, is the same thing. And when we're talking about leaving and cleaving, so what is the meaning of a wife being giving to her father, giving by her father to her husband? Well, Eve was given, to God, was, given to, was given by God. God, in his infinite wisdom, he determined that it was good that man should not be alone. God, the creator, the first father, created Eve, the first wife, for Adam, the first husband. Now, who, remember, who here remembers, or at least remembers seeing, when during the, the wedding, the father and the bride, they walk down the aisle, and they stand before for the pastor or the, uh, whoever's leading the ceremony. And, and what, what's the question the pastor asks? Who gives this woman to be married. That's where it's coming from. That's where all that came from here. Who gives, and, and, and in doing that, so the husband leaves his parents to form a new family, so the focus then becomes on this new family. The giving is an acknowledgement by the parents 
that she belongs to another. That's mom and dad saying, okay, we give her to you. So we're giving. That's that acknowledgement there. That's where that comes from. So the, fus- the husband's at that point is to focus on his wife, not mom and dad. The wife is to focus on the husband, not mom and dad. So we're bringing something new here into the world. So parents need to understand that in the marriage, a new family unit has been created by God for God's service and his enjoyment. So, in that passage of Scripture, Genesis 2, there's a word in there we haven't really discussed. We've, we've, we've been pretty good about hitting all, every word in there. And that word's become. That's, that word's become. It says, what does it, mean, what does it mean to become one in the relationship? And I think we need to kind of hang out there for a while. You know, here's... Here's the demonstration of the idea of oneness. Back to Ephesians chapter 5. It said, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, cleave, and the two shall become one flesh. This should lead us to an understanding about the new family. He's talking about, he's already talking, he's right here talking about one flesh. We can't hate our own self. He's already talking about the two becoming one in one flesh, just as Christ and the church has become one unit. So in that first verse, in the same way, a hu- way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, oneness again. Our parents and our families and, and friends those we meet should see husband and wife as one, as one unit. So unity is paramount in displaying in the display of Christ in his church. That's the idea in chapter 5 of Ephesians. And in its context where it's talking, like I said, about cherish, nourish, you know, and, and, and being a part of. So we do become one physically in consummation of marriage, But the idea presented here by God is saying we're to become one together in spirit and in union for a lifetime. Become, when we think about it, we can't just, uh, well, when we become one, the idea become is not just the idea of, it happens all at once, you know. We worked this out by, by husbands loving their wives as Christ did the church and wives being respectful and having pure conduct towards their husband. And kind of one of the, one of the ways we can start to do that is by learning to be friends. We talk to with, with each other, we share with one another, and that works towards oneness. Now, Doris and I have been best friends since before we were married. We still are, and I try to make sure she knows it every chance I get. It's good that she knows that I love her, that's great. But sometimes just knowing that my best friend has my back is good to know also, you know. Um, not, not a long time after my wife and I were married, I realized, and you know, it's another, it's another Davism, another story, I got lots of stories. I realized not long after we were married that we, when we went out, she had a really hard time making her mind up about what she wanted to eat on the menu. And I got a really good story about that, but I'm not going into that because I get myself in trouble. So, see, you know, when you're up here talking about your wife, gotta be careful about those things. But eventually, as we're, you know, I'd take about 30 seconds, I'd have, no, 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 I want, I'll get it. She might spend several minutes trying to make up her mind, and she'd make up her mind. And we'd get our plates, she'd look over at my plate, and she'd say, what do you got? Well, pretty soon, she'd be eating off of my plate. And pretty soon, my plate would be over there and I'd be eating her plate. <laughs> Not necessarily because I wanted my plate, because she liked my, she liked my plate. But you know what? I was comfortable with that. That was okay. That was fine. You know? And that's, that's the idea of that, 
of that we're not only friends, but also not only did we love each other, but we were friends. So, so another idea, so we need to be patient with each other. We need to serve each other. And I think that word serve and serving each other is important. Because as Christ served the church when he was with the church and said in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, life a ransom for many. I am starting to get, I'm going to do something here new. Cough drop. Our former pastor, he'd do that through a service. He'd put a cough drop in his mouth, which he said helped. And so keep your mouth from being dry. Okay, I got to say it. Funny story, though. Up one day, he has it in his pocket, and he could do it just with the ease. And just, you never even know he put the cough drop there. One day, he puts his cough drop up one, in one morning, and, and after about 15, 20 minutes, he gets, he gets a weird look on his face. You know, he just kept on preaching. After the surf said, well, what was the deal? He said, well, I noticed it wasn't dissolving. It was my coat button. So, yeah, so anyway. So back to where we were. So, one is best served out in prayer and serving one another in the marriage relationship. Just as Christ did with his church in the upper room, he washed their feet. If you remember John 13 and 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So the things we've been discussing, who we are as man and woman, how we handle conflict, sex in our relationship, how we manage our money, and then how now we relate to our family. These things don't just happen. They take time and commitment. It's very hard to know someone without spending time with them. If you know nothing about someone, it's really hard to be one with them. If you don't know their favorite color is blue, if you don't know their favorite football team, or even do they even like playing football or watching football, um, what are some common interests? You know, we may not agree on certain views on things or what we like, but we can respect the person we live with, even though we don't agree all the time, because we are in it together and know their heart. So what about responding in unity to the parents and extended family? That's kind of the second thought in this line of thought here. And specifically, what about, what about controlling parents? Well, my thought, Jacob and Esau. Now, each parent, they had a favorite. And neither one of them were ashamed to admit it or show it. Now, Isaac thought Esau was the bomb. He could hunt, he could fish, big, burly guy, hairy, great outdoorsman, fit in with Arkansas, perfect. However, he couldn't cook worth a flip. Couldn't boil water. Now, Rachel's favorite, that was Jacob. He was kind of a book reader, nerdish type, not real big, definitely no calluses on the hand. But boy, that man could cook. He could cook. Rachel felt like her favorite son, who was Jacob, he wasn't going to get what was due him, so she needed to intervene. She needed to control the situation, which she did. And eventually that kind caused all kinds of mayhem and, and eventually the breakup of the family because her desires were both selfish and, and, and wanton. And they ruled her life. So similar to controlling her child, trying to control adult children who are husband and wife, that destroys, it works at destroying the unity of the marriage. One member of the marriage who gives more credence to the parent undermines the unity of the marriage, just like Rachel's. Interfering in the affairs of her adult sons caused heartache and grief, so will the interference in the marriage unit. King Saul, he had an idea. He thought about controlling, how can I control David? Well, here, I will let him marry my oldest daughter. She can spy on him. This is a great deal. He thought, he thought. God intervened. Michael loved David. And so things didn't work out. Now, it wasn't in the best interest of the marriage, and the marriage didn't work out because of it. So that was in marriage 
that didn't work out. That was not in the best interest of the marriage. And a kind, of, a kind heart and words spoken in unity and love towards the controlling parents would be a scriptural answer. In Proverbs 15.1, we read, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's tough on a relationship, especially depending on whose, whose parent it is. But being united as one in, in desire is paramount. It may cause conflict. But, this, but we discussed conflict in marriage earlier. And those same rules that we talked about in conflict, they still hold true here too. And, and above all else, seek counsel and wisdom in dealing with situations like this. Don't think that you have to take it out. Take it on all by your own as young people. Seek counsel and wisdom. And unfortunately, in, in this place, we've got plenty of it. So don't be afraid. What about the distance physically and mentally, or how do we think biblically and respond to unity when parents seem to be maybe disinterested because they live far away or they don't seem as available to another set of parents, or sometimes they just don't really seem to care? It's difficult when two become one to understand the dynamics um, that work with the rest of the family. Uh, for instance, Doris and I, we. Like everybody else, we come from different families. Uh, hers was perhaps a little more dysfunctional than mine. The tendency was for us to spend more time with my parents than hers. We lived closer, which made it easier to stop by or be invited for dinner. I loved her mom. She loved having us around. But her dad didn't seem to care whether we were around or not. But regardless of the situation, each set of parents should have been given or awarded the same respect. I didn't like being around her dad. He was someone who was abusive to his wife and his treatment of her. And therefore, that even pushed me closer to wanting to, to spend our time with my folks. But what that did was it took away was my opportunity to show Christ and how I spoke to him and how I treated his daughter. We are admonished to honor our parents, no matter what their ages. How we honor them both with actions and attitudes, as in Mark 7, 6. We honor their, uns their unspoken as well as spoken attitudes. Uh, it says, a wise man heeds his father's instruction in Proverbs 13, 1. In Matthew, it talks about uh, the same thing. Solomon urged his children to respect their parents. And although we may not no longer be under them directly, we cannot outgrow God's command to honor our parents. Even Jesus, God said, submitted himself to both his earthly parents and his heavenly father. While we're, while we're required to honor our parents, that doesn't mean imitating ungodly ones. In Ezekiel 20, 18 and 19, it says, And I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, but keep their rules, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey them. So we have to be careful about uh, when we're asked to do things or, or uh, by our parents. Understand that we, there may be reasons I have big words on here so that I don't lose my place. If parents ask us to do something that clearly contradicts God's command, then we must obey God rather than parents. And in that, sometimes parents can say hurtful things regarding a spouse or a situation. Understand there may be reasons such as maybe they're lonely for their children or they're being felt left out in the marriage. Martha was angry with Christ and her sister because her sister was not helping and Christ was not admonishing her to help. The response of Christ was, Martha, Martha, in Luke 10, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good condition, which will not be taken away from her. His response was in love, in the idea that there are many things we can be hurt by and troubled by, but what is important is the love of Christ and his love for us. So when dealing with hurt and anger, our response is not to be hurt and become angry, but to be aware of Christ in our lives, to speak softly 
and humbly with our parents, united in Christ. So now that we've kind of established what's to our parents, we need to take a look from more of a marriage standpoint. As a married couple, you are a new creation. The two have become one. Your wife and husband become primary in this new creation. Prayer and honor and consideration towards our parents becomes necessary, but the new family unit is primary. So how we split the holidays, with whom we spend Christmas, or who we do you know, Thanksgiving with, who we spend our times with, we need, we need to look at that together as one in the light of God's grace towards us, knowing that our love for them is still demonstrated regardless of how much they seem to be involved in our lives. It may be some conversations need to, be, need to happen in a loving and an understanding environment. And again, that may or may not be possible, depending on the parents. If need be, seek counsel. You know, Doris and I, as I've talked about counsel before, Doris and I, we've talked many times throughout our life about the desire that how nice it would have been had we known about people that we could have gone to and seeked counsel from. Um, you know, instead of, instead of as young people trying to just wing it on our own out there because it's tough when you're separated from that advice from both sides. It's tough out there as a young couple. So seek advice. Don't be afraid to seek counsel and ask somebody for help. Because like, like I said, for us, it would have been nice to have had that. So we've been talking about oneness. It may be also in the best interest of a marriage. Say the wife talks with her parents as ambassadors for the marriage about whatever the issue is. Now this should be talked about and understood by both husband and wife. And there should be agreement on whatever that path forward should be. Whether or not who should handle that. But I think it's possible that, that as a, you know, it's sometimes easier for the, for the child of that parent to talk to those parents. But the, in order for that to happen, there needs to be agreement between husband and wife and say, okay, talk to your parents, you know, and let's see if we can humbly and, and gracefully go to this situation and, and approach it from a godly standpoint. Now, as a parent, I see there's a lot of parents out here too, but this, this helps, this goes kind of both ways. We don't know in this new relationship kind of where we stand. So it is helpful for children to say what's enough, again, humbly and wisely to their parents, or what's not enough. We're not seeing enough of you. Or can we communicate in a different way? So I can say from our, just from a parent standpoint, that's nice to know. Because sometimes distance makes that interaction with children difficult. You know, one set of parents may live closer than the other and have more access to the marriage. And the parents that live away may feel, out, feel left out or they may somehow feel inferior to the others. Wise couples will approach those parents and let them know about their love and they need to find ways to demonstrate it. You know, might think about FaceTime or uh, maybe more frequent phone calls. Some parents may appreciate it. Some may not. Again, communication with those parents to try to figure that out is kind of paramount. And some parents we've noted above that can be controlling and demand attention. A unified loving hand may be necessary to, to help them understand. So that kind of gets us to the parent part of the thing. Now we end up with, with children. In Psalm 127, 3 through 5, it says, Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. So we kind of need to think biblically about children and childbearing. I think we can safely say God loves children and created families to be some kind of display of his glory. First, God says children are his heritage. They display God in a kind of glory in that we must come to God through Jesus Christ as little children. We've been seeing how the marriage and the marriage unit represents Christ and his church in Ephesians 5 and 6. Children are a reward from God in the Christian home to better show the grace of God. Again, we must come to Christ in that manner as a child, lowliness of heart, as a child before his father, the trust of his father protect him. 
In Matthew 18, 3, it says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They are to be perfect arrows. They're supposed to be straight and true for the family. Laid upon the parent's heart is the obligation to keep those arrows from bending or being broken or warping. Knowing that children are the heritage of God, that should inspire us to enjoy our children for the glory of God. It works back to how the world perceives God and how through what we have and what we do through our children. Jesus loves children so much that he gave specific instructions to the angels about them. If we read in Matthew 18, 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. We're told by scripture the angels of children are always before the face of God. So children are a blessing from God. If we look at the Old Testament and the New we see how much children meant to families and were considered a blessing. In Psalm 127, we saw offspring, a reward for him. Then we could look at John the Baptist in Luke 1, verse 58. And it says, And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Mary with Christ in Luke 2, 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. In Psalm 37, 26, he is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. So children raised in a Christian environment, they can help us from becoming selfish. You know, it's pretty easy once you've had them. once you've had them anyway, that uh, time and money is involved. So, I think I've got myself lost again. There we go. We need to understand that, that children are a gift to God. They're unique in every way. They help of our understanding what God desires of us in salvation. As we stated earlier, earlier, watching a little child act, act toward us is how we should act towards God when we worship. Ultimately, raising up children in the way they should go, that being a heart towards God, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even then, when he is old, he will not depart from it. As children of the king and having an understanding of Christ in his church, it's only natural that our desire is that they have the same knowledge of Jesus Christ, raising them, raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What parent would not, that, what Christian parent would not do everything he could for his children to keep them from finding out the reality of hell? Again, Doris and I, we kind of had firsthand experience of that. One of our children, when he turned 18, he ran off the rails. And for several, several years, he did that which was not right in the sight of the Lord. Now, he'd been raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the Lord took him down, and he took him down hard. He took him down very, very, very low. But in that doing, in doing so, what God raised up was when he, after he saved him, when he got to the bottom of that pit, God saved that child and then raised him up in his glory, in his admonition. And, and today, Doris and I are both amazed at what, what God did through the salvation of that child. But first, he was raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He knew God from the physical, mental sense, but it took God to take him to a place where what he had heard became a reality and the only way out was for God to bring him out of it, which God did and raised him to a place. So, in 
and we still pray tears for him every day. So what about developing unity and becoming parents? So let's talk about something that I know is not so much a large part of this group, or we already kind of have a, a handle on, and that's uh, the place of faith in childbirth and, and childbearing. It goes back to that oneness thing. The closer we become with one another, the more Christ-centered this becomes. And there's a lot of thought that needs to go into um, by both people about birth control and come together on. And keep in mind that uh, birth control is not 100%. If God wills a child, then a child will happen. That's the nature of the sexual union. And first off, a parent needs to be prepared for that. So if the child's not uh, an afterthought or the timing was wrong and there's something held against the child, God's timing's never wrong. In Psalms 27 or 37, 23, he says, the steps of a good man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. We need to look at our motives and they need to center upon the glory of God and faith in his sovereign care. Our conscience needs to be clear with whatever form of birth control we might be using, knowing that there are certain limits to that, like the morning after pill, which can act as an abortificient. In saying that, I say, do your research on how each measure works and be specific. Get lots of wise counsel and not just from your peers, ask your doctor, ask some people that you believe wise. And husbands need to be careful with your wife as you know, in this, we think this is all the wife's decision and, and a large part of it is, but a, a husband needs to be careful with her wife and those decisions to be along with her in the study and, 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 and being informed about this stuff because some of these, some of these birth control message, methods may harm your wife and you're the protector of her. So to say just, you know, okay, whatever, honey. Well, you know, you need to be aware that, that you're her protector. So there needs to be some discussion there between you and her as far as that goes. And so as you're working through these issues, be, in a guard, be on guard against those things, but also be on guard against issues of fear and control. There may be fear that, well, we're not gonna have any kids because they can't raise them right. I don't know how I'm gonna raise them. Uh, maybe we're not gonna have enough money. Um, there may be a lot of fear that, we, that we, we're not ready. Well, that, again, that goes back to that oneness and working together and making a prayer, prayerful decision as a, as a couple. That's important. You know, in this day and time, there's a lot of uh, feminist bent towards uh, it's her body, her choice. Well, it needs to be a decision by both, for, by both of you. And there's also a lot of men who want to defer that decision completely to the women. And in doing that, they kind of are saying, well, it's your body and your choice. We need to be, as, we need to be a couple, we need to be one. And that's what we're talking about, unity. On the other, other hand, sometimes there's a struggle with infertility and learning to lament without obsession and, and bitterness. Now, infertility is not something that the Bible's without word on. If we remember Sarah, Abraham's wife dealt with it, Samson's mother, Rachel had issues with it, Hannah and the birth of Samuel, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And it's as real today as it was back then. There's hurt and suffering involved, and that can be just the same. In each of these, the women grieved. And if we look at those narratives, we'll find that a lot of scripture is devoted to the grieving process, but very much, very little is mentioned about after the birth. And a miscarriage like infertility can bring about similar emotions in some women, maybe not all, but grieving is natural. Bitterness removes us from God. Oftentimes the husband does not understand. As we can also note in scripture, if we remember Elkanah, the uh, husband of Hannah, he said in 1 Samuel 1.8, and Elkanah her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why, in your, why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? He didn't get it. He didn't get the grieving. He didn't, he, didn't grieve, he didn't get the pain. And honestly, you know, most of the men in here, if they're like me, 
It's difficult. Honestly, we don't get it sometimes. Learning to, to lament loss without being bitter, it can be difficult. And those dealing with loss need to, be per, to prayerfully know who they are in Christ and understand that you're not alone. It's easy to become bitter towards our husbands when you can't conceive, especially if the problem is concerning him. One can even be bitter towards God. In the Bible, there's lots of experience about bitterness. If we think about Job, in Job 1, he said, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in bitterness of my soul. In 7.11, he said, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And sometimes I know these, this kind of bitterness can be there. But Isaiah also said, and even though he was, was familiar with bitterness, he said in 38.17, Behold, it was my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. God delivered him from the pit of destruction. He found and he was grounded in God. Being grounded in who we are in Christ as a person and as one helps us deal with the pain. We can become so obsessed with having children, it infiltrates all parts of our lives. It tears at the very fabric of our relationship. I would implore you to lean on Christ first and be one with your husband. Husbands, part of loving your wife is being there when she needs someone to lean on. Sometimes that means just a lot of holding, and there's nothing wrong with that. And wives shouldn't be afraid to just run to their husband and put, uh, put the tears on his shoulders. A husband who's vested in the grieving process can have a huge impact on the welfare of his wife. In 1 Peter 5, 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. God admonishes us to cast our cares on him because he cares for you, casting off all our anxieties. In Psalm 46, 1 through 5, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. This is our God and our present help. When the angel of the Lord came to Mary, the mother of John the Baptist, after being barren most of her life, she said in Luke 1, 37 and 38, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Keeping in our minds that God is faithful to his children, no matter the situation. In Hebrews 10, 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. During these times, seek wise counsel. Find faithful and loving people to be around. So what about the size of the quiver and kind of the anxieties that uh, come with resources in that? Because it, uh, if you remember back up at the, at the beginning when we talked about that in Psalm 127, it said, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. As the oneness would imply, working through how many children you have should be, it can be an issue. Of course, sometimes it may not be an issue, but however they come and fill the quiver is great. I know in our case, Doris and I, we thought about five or six. Doris will tell you we both ended up with two, and there was a lot, you know, there was a lot going in our lives back then. I think we, some financial things that personally it wasn't her, it was more me. Some financial issues came up, you know, and and I thought, well, you know, it's pretty much after the first one. Uh, that had some impact. And then uh, the second one, well, the timing wasn't quite as thought out. Oops. And uh, 
That may have had some impact also on how many children we had. Don't know. However it worked out, our God was sovereign in the past, the present, and the future. Things I learned over the years are, God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. Children are a blessing, and however many you decide on, or how many God gives, be thankful and know, strangely enough, the resources are there. Now, you may not live in luxury, but God loves his children. That does not mean you should not plan to be mindful of your finances, however. The second thing, you, you may not be as much in control as you think. Like I told you earlier, oops. God can surprise you. God, Doris will tell you today that whatever that quiver was, our two was full. So trust God. We had a friend, you know, we lived about 30 some odd years in a place called El Reno, Oklahoma. It's on the other side of Oklahoma City, about 20, 30 miles, small town, 13, 15,000. Uh, the doctor there, Dr. Strong, delivered both our children. And he and I were talking one day. And how, what came, well, came up vasectomies, which is kind of a strange subject, but he's a doctor anyway. He was a, he was trained in the Air Force. And uh, we were talking about it. He said, yeah. He said, uh, uh, a young airman came in, just got married. He said, I want, I don't want to have, we don't want to have any children. So he said, tried to dissuade him first. And he said, okay. So he had a vasectomy. Nine months later, he came back to the doctor and said, didn't work. Oops. Well, I said, why strange? So the doctor said, we'll fix that. And this is not our doctor. This is, he's relating this from one of his, one of the other doctors in the Air Force at the time. And they said, oops, well, we'll fix that. So he went in and he did it again. Nine months later, man came back and said, oops, we got two. The doctor said, well, that's strange. We'll fix it. Well, there were a total of five kids. Point being, God will do what God's going to do. So we sometimes think we have control. So kind of as a side note to that, sometimes God's purpose in filling quivers not from in, within the body, but from without. Perhaps God would have a, a marriage strengthened through adoption or other means. And as a grandson of, of an adopted grandfather and grandparents of four adopted children, I can tell you that the love we have for all our children is the same. People used to come up to us after our children adopted and say, how do you love those children like your own? And our question always back to them was, how do you not? And we very seldom even say adopted. We don't, we don't when we address our children to other, our grandchildren or other people, we don't call them adopted. We call them our grandchildren. So the heart of God can bring those into the family and make it sweet and make it joyful. So what's the meaning of faithful parenting and how do we provide for children without the pressure of giving them everything they want? Deuteronomy 6.5 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So putting God on display is the meaning of faithful parenting as it should be with all our life. We've been demonstrating how the marriage should show Christ and his church through these various sessions and that holds true with being faithful parents. So faithful parenting is a matter of priorities. Putting God first in the marriage and in parenting is essential to keeping the balance within the family unit. That means children do not come first. Actually, they don't even come second. Actually, not even third. A godly priority means God comes first, the spouse comes second, the family unit third, then the individual child. And if we keep this perspective, it helps us move through what a child really needs. A child needs to see parents who are all in for Jesus Christ. God is not just important, but the center of the family. They also need to see 
the love the father has for the mother and vice versa. They need to be aware they are important. That is, they need to be aware they are important, but they are not the most important part of the family. And that becomes more obvious when you've added more children to the family, if that happens. As I mentioned earlier, raising a child as a disciple of Jesus Christ should be our first priority in the aim of our child rearing. It's very easy for a mother to become so wrapped up in a new child that her husband is ignored mentally and physically. The parent or parent's focus moves from God and each other completely to the children or child. And if that's left unchecked, then what you end up with is two becoming two again, not two being one. So the focus on the family uh, relegates God, if in that particular instance, God gets relegated to second or third place. And even today, the world, it doesn't recognize the existence of family in, in, the Christian, in its Christian values. Uh, activities for children happen every day, all times of the week. The parents need to make decisions on the child's activities, not the child. As the child grows and learns independence, these priorities remain the same. When deciding what a child can participate in, is God first? How does this affect the parents, the family, whatever they're going to be involved in? How does this impact the finances, time, those around him or her siblings? When thinking about college, the same thought process kind of goes through. We may or may not have been able to save for our children's higher education. How much debt can we allow ourselves to be, to be put in without affecting our family and giving? And what is fair to all our children? Have we instilled in our children responsibility and a work ethic? As parents, we love our kids. We want them to be all they possibly can. This is natural for all of us. Faithful parenting is knowing that we have a faithful God and resting in that. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, it says, Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In Psalms 111.7, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. First uh, Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you will be called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord.